This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're someplace warm right now enjoying a mug of hot chocolate with marshmallows, and sitting in front of a blazing fire in the fireplace. We're at the end of another growing season, and I'm spending a lot of time ruminating about what worked and what didn't work in my garden over the last eight months. I'll be doing some fine-tuning in the garden next year, and I'm writing down all of my thoughts in my gardening journal. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with best-selling author Benjamin Vogt about his revolutionary book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce author Benjamin Vogt. A native gardener from Nebraska, Benjamin Vogt has a lot to say about how we, as Americans, are treating the wildlife that live on our properties. His book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future, is a fierce and passionate discussion about how important it is for humans to get back in touch with their innate connection to the wild. Be it birds, bumblebees, voles, or butterflies, he's asking all of us to stop and think about how wildlife is affected by our choices regarding our landscapes. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on, Catherine. Yeah, it is great to have you on the show. Your book is fantastic. I was hoping we could talk about that. Now, you say in your book that in a time of mass extinction and climate change, how and for whom we garden matters more than ever. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, as humans create the sixth mass extinction, we are just, we're just burning through species and species are falling off the face of the planet at like a dozen an hour or something. We really just don't know how bad it is. So we have some really immediate power in our lives and that power is right around our home landscapes. We can do something there. So if you live on a quarter acre lot, a one acre lot, or you have 20 acres, you have a lot of influence with the species that are around you, with nature around you. So the plants that you choose matter because when you're choosing native plants, you are selecting species that can help other wildlife like pollinators who can only use native plants as host plant for their larvae. There are lots of bee species who specialize on specific native plant pollen. Um, So when you are selecting native plants over exotic plants, you are providing more for the environment around you and creating a sort of island of a refuge in your urban or suburban neighborhood. Right. Now, could you talk a moment about biophilia? Oh, boy. 
I'd have to look at my book for that. I can never remember everything I talk about. That's the bad thing of being a writer. You write these things down so you don't have to remember. <laughs> but biophilia is just basically this, this idea that humans and other species have equal value on the planet. We all have the same right to exist. We all have the same desires, really, too, if you want to go more philosophical about it. We all want to be happy and safe and have our bellies full and be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. So it's this idea that we have this natural, innate love and appreciation for the nature around us and even respect for it, and we naturally want to cultivate that. So it's it's sort of this um, Jedi Force thing going on that's genetically programmed uh, within us. Right. And could you maybe talk about deep ecology versus shallow ecology? Yeah, this and this is where the philosophy of the conversation in my book and a lot of lectures I, I, I do really comes in and really becomes challenging for a lot of people because it's not just always as simple as choosing a native plant or exotic. I, I always like to ask, well, well, why? So there are two basic environmental philosophies at play in our culture, and one is called shallow ecology. That's basically the idea that humans can fix the, the environmental crisis issues using methods that cause that same environmental crisis. So, for example, I am a fan of solar and wind and geothermal and all that stuff, it's still not addressing the underlying issues of mass consumption, the kind of society and culture we have as as far as the economy goes, the extraction-based culture that we have. Deep ecology is is a little bit different, and it says, how can we look at other species' wants and needs as equal to our own and even being paramount to our own? And how can we reimagine or realign our culture and our society to sort of go along with the goals and the feelings and the needs of other species. So it's a very radical departure compared to how certainly American culture works right now, which is very human-centered, very me-centered, me-first, and and certainly all about consumerism. Could you talk about the psychology of ownership and possession? It seems like when someone buys a house or a property, they feel as though they own not just the house, but all the living creatures on that property. This is definitely where people need to read Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. Uh, that he'll, he'll do a better job with this than, than I will. But yeah, we do. You, I talk to people all the time and they say, well, this is, you know, this is my lot. This is my land. I own it. I can do what I want with it. And that's the core problem right there. And it's not uniquely American, but it's, it certainly is definitely this American perspective, this, this sort of, um, I am, I am better than the things around me and this is my little fiefdom and this is, you know, my little castle and I can do what I want. But if we can look at our landscapes as, as this sort of, this place of reciprocity where we're welcoming other people, I mean, other species to come, come in and, and share life with us, that, is also a radical idea. We we have friends come over, we have family come over for dinner. How is it any different when we invite birds to come over for dinner or, or monarch butterflies or frogs or snakes to come over to have a meal and just hang out with us and, and get to know one another and get to know each other's cultures and in that way just basically become more empowered and more sensitive to the world around us and, and more connected, which can be... Being more connected is very scary <laughs> because... Just when I talk to people about snakes, they, they don't want snakes in their gardens. And I'm always like, oh, oh my goodness, snakes are, seeing snakes in your garden is wonderful. That, that means the ecosystem is working. They're going to get rid of the voles and the mice with, for you. And, and so learning the culture of snakes 
where they like to hang out, when do they tend to come out the most, just their life cycle, are they venomous or not. These things can seem scary at first, but once we study and learn about the culture of other species, it actually helps us understand them and not be so afraid and, and be able to then welcome them into our lives a little bit more. So that was a long rant, but... Yeah, no, that's great. So now, could you just talk about Aldo Leopold for a moment? He figures quite prominently in your book. Well, he's got this... Yeah, I start out with his idea of a land ethic, and I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to do this in the environmental or, or ecological fields. He He's... He's such a powerful, towering figure. Um, so, he, so he has this idea that you know we 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 have to have respect for the land and respect for the community that's in that's within that land. And it's not it's not just one culture, one community. It's not just ours. It's just vast interconnected web. And I think we still have a lot of issues coming to terms with what the web of life means. It's more than just understanding that everything's connected. It's understanding that, I guess in biblical terms, what you do to the least of me, you you do to me. So if we're, you know, right now in the news is that airport up up in Rockford, Illinois, they're going to be paving a road through a, a very rare remnant prairie that's about five acres. So it's not a very big, big spot, but it's a rusty patch bumblebee habitat. And this is a, an endangered, threatened bumblebee. If we're not standing up for the least of the creatures around us, we're going to create a cascade effect that's going to impact all of us in untold ways and in powerful and even dangerous ways as we face climate change and mass extinction. So how can we get past this sense of entitlement about everything and develop some compassion for other species? Oh, God, that's hard. You can't ask me that question. <laughs> I... <laughs> it is. It, it's loaded, and it, it's such a it's such a personal process. It's... I speak in my book about environmental grief and how everybody, because that's, that's what's going on in this conversation. I really believe that that's what's at the heart of what we're trying to get at in conversation today with you. And just, just in general, when we talk about mass extinction and climate change, we're trying to process environmental grief or how we respond to all the quote unquote bad or negative news around us or how we impact the world around us in, in some not so great ways. So everybody works through grief differently. Processing this grief, it, it could take you days, it could take you weeks, it could take you years. And what your socioeconomic background is affects how you work through that grief, how you become empowered, how you open yourself up to the concerns of other people and other species around you. It is a very <laughs> complex psychological soup. And I, I try to take a stab at it in my book, at least regarding gardens and garden design. Now, you say that we're genetically programmed to love the wild, but overpopulation in crowded cities with concrete and asphalt and tall buildings are really robbing us of the tranquility of forested areas. It sounds like we're starving for the wild. There have been a lot of studies about how when you live in an urban area, you, you become more diverse from nature because there's just far less green space. So, so right now in our landscape architecture, there's this movement to try and increase green space in cities and understand that green spaces, whether they're just huge tracts of lawn or, or whether they're more prairie or, or forest, like how, how these spaces actually in, in, encourage us to help us to be healthier physically, mentally, spiritually. We can, there have been studies that show that kids who have a view of nature outside of the classroom window can actually focus better. Their test scores go up. They have better intercommunication skills. It's actually good in some ways that we have so many people living in urban areas and we're going to have more and more because that concentrates resources, so to speak. I think 
for me, how I feel, maybe it's just because I live out here in the plains and in Nebraska, I feel like agriculture is the big issue because it, it covers so much more land mass. How, how we farm, how we provide food for cattle and chickens and livestock, because so much of it doesn't actually go to us. It's that soybeans and corn is actually going to, to cows and chickens and whatnot. How we farm, how we manage these landscapes, what kind of resources we're using on them, to me that is the big, big issue because the, the landmass is just so massive when you're talking farms compared to cities. So I think one of the biggest issues that a lot of people really sink their teeth into when we're talking about more natural landscapes and urban areas is this discussion, argument, fight over lawn and how much lawn there is. I mean, it really is the dominant landscape feature right next to concrete and asphalt, but it's a biological desert. It has very few beneficial ecosystem services. It, it helps with runoff a little bit. It amends top couple inches of soil a little bit, but it's really not providing habitat. It's not really storing a lot of carbon. It's not cooling the air, the air around it very much like you would get if you had a... Um, more of a designed prairie space or throw some trees and shrubs in there and really, really mix up the layers. So I think what it looks like, what it entails is trying to reduce how much lawn we have and seeing lawn as actually the more intensive high maintenance landscape, which I strongly believe it is, not just philosophically, but, but practically in my design practice. I think about my neighbors who are mowing once or even twice a week. Some of them are watering every day. They watch commercials that say fertilize four times a day. You don't have to do any of that when you have a native plant landscape and you've chosen native plants adapted to your climate, to your ecoregion, and to, to your site, to your lot, because you've chosen plants that are going to work well together and work well in that soil. I always tell people with my home landscape, I'm basically just mowing it down in the spring, which takes an hour or two, and I don't mow again the rest of the year. In the fall, I do some planting, some tweaking, filling in gaps, uh, changing things up a little bit because that's a great time of year to plant. So I think it's just we need to think about lawn reduction, lawn alternatives, and accepting these lawn alternatives as not messy, not wild, not dangerous, not full of rodents rodents that are going to give us plague, but are going to give us so many environmental and health benefits. Right. So I guess my question is, you know, what do we do with our emotional distress or our, for me, it's anger. I have a lot of anger at myself for allowing myself to be seduced by the colorful marketing of these commercial flower catalogs that I get in the mail every winter. None of them are native. They're all non-native. Yeah. I ordered those and planted those for years, but I feel betrayed. You know, I feel betrayed by commercial enterprises. I felt like I was kind of, you know, this is probably an apt metaphor, led down the garden path with a lot of uh, mistruths. You know, you just mentioned about, you know, fertilizing four times a day. And, you know, we've totally given up our yard. It is a native garden now. And parts of it are approaching meadow. <laughs> I'm not the most popular person in the neighborhood. I get a lot of stink eye, you know, from the neighbors. But do you think there'll ever be a point in time where instead of these green postage stamp lawns, there'll be native gardens in, in front of everyone's house? That's always the dream, right? We we have this we have this carrot on a stick, and the stick seems to be getting longer and longer. It doesn't seem to be getting shorter, even though we have lots of t people talking about this subject. I think one of our biggest hurdles is that p 
people are used to seeing a certain kind of landscape design, and that's one, dominated by lawn, number one, and number two, it's a space that, well, if you just look at houses, we've got the lawn coming up to a house traditionally, and then we have a thin border around the house, like a like a Christmas tree skirt or something. It's, it's very strange and odd looking, especially when you go to other countries, you're like, well, what is this? This makes no sense. So we have maybe a three-foot or six-foot wide bed going all the way around the house and it's full of wood mulch and the, you got maybe 10 plants and 100 square feet and they're all spread far apart. They're lined up like soldiers or a firing squad or something. That's what most people see as a professional, well-designed, well-maintained landscape. When you're driving around and you've, you've seen what all the wonderful mow and blow crews have, have, have done, that's what it is. It's lawn, a very small bed with lots of wood mulch and a few plants. And, and so we are accustomed to thinking that's correct. That's right. That's the ideal. And you even see it on incredibly expensive homes where you, you, you think maybe they'd have money to do something a little bit cooler. So we need to be creating landscapes, examples that people can see that go against what we assume is the norm and the ideal. That's a challenge. It's, it's, it's a challenge in any I consider this a social justice movement. So any any social justice movement, is, you know, anything that's a little bit different is suddenly blown up into this radical radical challenge. And no, we can't have this. We can't we can't do this. There's all these there's all these obstacles, but the obstacles are always just in our heads. It it takes so little to to kill your lawn, <laughs> and so it's so liberating and freeing, especially once you see the wildlife that come to native plants. Right. Now, is it safety people are after, conforming to the norm? It just feels safer to them to have their lawn look like everyone else's? They don't want to be singled out or rejected. No, we, we have a herd, we have a herd mentality. This is, this is part of our animal brains. It goes back through, through thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. We, there's safety in numbers, right? <laughs> and you, you want to play along to, to get along and you don't want to create any more aggravation or trouble in your life. And you certainly don't want to be picked off by a neighbor who reports you to city weed control and they come out and put those wonderful orange signs staked into your yard and then you have to go through all that fighting. Yeah, no, there's definitely this this herd mentality going on, and so it's like we're 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 fighting culture and society, but we're also fighting what's this this other sort of genetically programmed trait that's that's within us about safety and numbers. Right, and um, I I know you quote Leopold in your book saying nonconformity is the highest evolutionary attainment. Yes, <laughs> of the social animals. So, are you encouraging us to be nonconformist? Uh, yeah, even though I can, even though I conform like everybody else, it's just what, what areas of your life do you conform in? What areas don't you? So you sort of have to navigate that, that balance. <laughs> you also talk about how the dominant culture pushes its will on the oppressed. So when it comes to lawns and neighbors, who, who is the dominant culture and who is the oppressed? The, the oppressed are the wildlife that you don't see in your lawn. Because there's nothing there for them to use. There's no habitat. There's no home. There's nothing they recognize. There's there's nothing they evolved, co-evolved with to need or to want. Again, the simplest example is monarch butterflies using milkweed as a host plant. That's the only plant they can use to lay their eggs on. So if we don't have that plant, we don't have monarch butterflies. Our neighbors, well, right now my neighbors are dominating me because I'm the only house in a subdivision of probably 150 houses that has, has torn out 90% of my lawn. So again, I, this goes back to what I talked about earlier. I think the dominant culture is just this mow and blow. 
uh, landscape design subculture we have um, this this ideal that that landscapes are one way when they're not so i mean when you when you put down that lawn when you put down that wood mulch and only put in a couple of plants you are saying this is what i want as a human being this is what i want my landscape to look like and this is how it's going to be now if you were not practicing as as a dominant species or, or putting a dominant culture on the landscape you would stop before you did anything before you altered anything and said okay what else uses this space? What else calls us home? What do they need? What do they prefer? And how can I at least meet them in the middle? Maybe I should not cut down this tree. Maybe I should add two trees over here and there should be understory trees because there's an overstory tree and we want to create layers. Maybe I don't really need this much lawn. We, 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 we never play in the front yard. We're always in the backyard. So maybe the most of the front lawn can be taken out and we can provide a habitat because we have all these other cultures around us, right? What's the culture of a bee? What's the culture of, of, of a butterfly, of a bird? What's the culture of a stream? What's the culture of a stone? So, again, this is all really hard to do. <laughs> right. Exercising domination in the name of one's own joy. I'm quoting you right from your book. Yeah, that's a good quote right there. That would make a good tattoo if anybody wants one. <laughs> so, again, we're back to entitlement, this idea of, Owning the, all of the property and every every living thing on it. Yeah, and 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 part of that again is cultural, and part of that is just we're we're animal. We want to. We evolved coming out of the grasslands of of, of Africa and perhaps even the Middle East, where you know, we had this flat expanse and we could see things coming from a distance. We could see dangers coming, whatever peril there might be out there, and we'd have time to go hide or run away or something. And that's. And one of the theories is that's why we have lawns so much, why we why we find lawns so accepting and comfortable and wonderful, because it helps us, you know, see perceived threats coming from a distance, even though we don't actually have those threats in, in suburban and urban areas, in the way you'd have out in the Serengeti or something like that. Right. So what led you to write this book? Anger. <laughs> I mean, you just said you, you've got anger. I think right. anger, I find anger especially when you're able to harness it and focus it to be a very potent elixir, very powerful instigator. Um, and anger anger can lead to understanding and compassion and, and empathy. A lot of people can get stuck on anger because it can almost be like a drug. It almost feels good uh, in, in some ways. Um, when I started working on these ideas, maybe 2014 or 2015, I was mostly sharing them online and and articles and blog posts and certainly on my social media. And I was very angry and as passionately angry about the subject. And people, people were passionately angry, uh, disagreeing with me. And those conversations led me to realize that I needed to explore this topic in more depth. I needed to understand what's behind these ideas that are so separate, but are really two sides of the same coin. Like right now, I'm really intrigued by how we have so many garden designers now, more more than ever, I think, telling us to use native plants. And at the same time, they're using all kinds of non-native plants in their landscape designs as well. And, and the argument goes that, well, if you mix native and exotic, you can actually increase ecosystem function and habitat for wildlife, which I think is, you know, a bunch of, it's not valid at all. But they're getting it. They're thinking. They're 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 coming around, so to speak. And they're they're just the other side of the coin. We want the same thing. When we all garden, when we all you know, we all garden because we care about the environment, because we want nature in our lives. 
whether you're planting a hosta and a, a butterfly bush or whether you're planting milkweed and aster. This reluctant conversion of landscape designers, do you think for them, is it an ethical issue? Is it a moral issue? No, I wish it was. And, you know, whenever I make it a moral or ethical issue, I understand completely it is a, it is a major turnoff to a lot of people. And I think one of the reasons it's a turnoff is because I'm asking people to be very introspective, to really question why they do what they do and how they do it. And, you know, when you're a landscape designer or whatever profession you're in, your identity is 90% that profession, right? You're going to want to defend it. You're you're not going to want to be challenged and you're not going to want to complicate it in any way. You have this certain set belief system. um, You rely upon it. It's simple. It makes sense to you. It creates order in the universe for you. And then whenever somebody comes along to destabilize it or to ask us to think critically in a different way, it can feel very personal and very unnerving. So whenever, I think for a lot of landscape designers, it's more about practical issues. When you can mix exotic and native plants, your, your plant palette expands, right? You can do so much more aesthetically. But again, my, my moral and ethical question is, who are we gardening for? If we're just gardening for us, if plant chess choices are just about aesthetics for humans, isn't that a problem? Isn't that an issue? Isn't that even wrong in some way? And the answer is, of course, yes. (laughs) Right. Now, you mentioned Joy Williams in your book. I know she's a very outspoken author, uh, very outspoken about the rights of animals and uh, all of wildlife, basically. And you were saying she was referring to it as a moral issue. She's saying it's not about infrastructure. It's not about changing institutions. She said it's about changing hearts and minds. Yes, it is. It is. And and that's that's... I mean, that's where everything starts. If you're going to change institutions, if you're going to change the way we landscape around our homes, businesses, schools, and churches, it doesn't, it doesn't start with policy. It doesn't start with law. It starts with what we feel on the inside, what we're passionate about, what we're connecting with, what, what we want to defend. We will defend what we love. And what is it that we love? Do we love just ourselves? Do we love just nature? Can we love them together? Because nobody else is going gonna, is gonna to defend these things for us if we truly love them. So policy comes from this, this, this moral, psychological, philosophical rewiring inside ourselves. And it's, it's, I think it's very much a deliberate practice. And you have to, you have to want to, to practice it deliberately. It takes at least 20 instances of a new idea for people to even begin to reconsider their own viewpoint. So if somebody uh, loves to mow their lawn 85 times a week, they just are out there clipping it with their scissors. And my God, I have neighbors out there with scissors on their hands and knees clipping their lawns. You know, they're not going to even begin to listen to you, even even 1%, until about 20 occurrences of, of, you know, this different idea that you'd love if they would consider. Oh, my goodness. I, I thought I was the only one. I have a neighbor who uses a ruler and scissors. <laughs> and kneels in the grass and cuts the entire lawn to the height of the ruler that he has stuck in the ground. Wow, I've never heard of a ruler. There's more of them out there. I thought I was the only one with a neighbor like that. <laughs> I like it when people use rulers in, in the spring so that they can leave 12 to 18 inches of, of perennial plant stems up so bees can build homes in them. That's what I want right. to see. Right, right. That sounds good. So I hate to even ask this question because I don't want to make my listeners break down and start crying, but are we too late? 
Yes. Okay, are we done? <laughs> Look, we're too late for some things. We're not too late for others. I think about two degrees Celsius of global heating is going to be an incredible disaster. We all know this, and we all know it's coming. But it doesn't have to come. We can stop at 1.5 degrees of global heating. But even that's going to be a major disaster. So the deal is, how, how much of a disaster do you want to have? you want to have it to be lesser or do you want it to be greater? So, yes, we've lost species. We're losing species every day. We're not going to get them back. They're gone forever. I think a lot about my three-year-old and and the different worlds we're going to grow up in. I remember being a kid, there was just, there was so much nature around me, even even living in an urban area. There were so many, I feel like there were so many more bird calls, so many other species around me. And, and here living where we are now, it's basically robins, blue jays, some sulfur butterflies, a couple of swallowtails. It just, it just feels quieter and emptier. Right. I agree with you. I, I'm noticing the same thing. So now we do have a few minutes left. Why don't we talk about your uh, upcoming book, Prairie Up, An Introduction to Natural Garden Design. Can you give our listeners a heads up? Yeah, I am very, very excited about this next book because it is a totally different direction. So A New Garden Ethic is all about the uh, the why, the philosophical why to this conversation, and Prairie Up is going to be how. And it is geared towards – it is definitely an introduction to natural design. It is – geared towards newbies, weekend warriors, people who are active gardeners, but they are ready to try something radically different and more sustainable, more environmentally friendly for wildlife. It is a very, very practical guide on how to create layers in, in your garden to, to use plant communities to the benefit of, of habitat and, and weed suppression. I really hope this book is going to help a lot of people because we have a lot of we have a lot of books like this out there that are geared more towards landscape architects and professionals, and I think we have very little that, that, that's geared towards people who just don't have as much experience or education. Right. Well, that sounds like a great book. I can't wait to see it. And the pictures are going to be pretty nice, too, I think. A lot of, lot of good examples for you just to look at. That's great. And when does this come out? Hopefully in the fall. We've had to, It was supposed to come out spring of 2022, but... All kinds of issues. So we're going to hope for the fall. Okay. So before Christmas of next year. Yeah. I told my press, we we, we got to do it before Christmas, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect Christmas gift for the avid native gardener. I think so. And uh, I'll certainly have uh, signed copies available for sale on my website starting next September or next October. That is great. Well, Benjamin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'd like to thank Benjamin Vogt for joining us today. You can order his award-winning book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future, by going to Amazon.com or the Barnes & Noble website. You can also learn more about Benjamin Vogt and his new upcoming book, Prairie Up, An Introduction to Natural Garden Design, by going to his website at monarchguard.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. 
Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.